What is it about our brains and the process of decision-making that makes a nudge work? Nudges are things that economists would say wouldn't matter. It, it's not that they work better than a mandate. It's that they work at all. In some cases, they work amazingly well. A lot of economists sort of said, hmm, okay, maybe there's more to this than we had been willing to acknowledge up to that point. Welcome to an extra slice of the pie. I'm Tess Vigland, former host at Public Radio's Marketplace. This is an expanded podcast series featuring conversations with University of Chicago scholars on cutting edge research and key events of the day. The Pi is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. In this episode, we're hearing from Chicago Booth professor and Nobel laureate Richard Thaler. I sat down with Professor Thaler to discuss Nudge, the final edition, co-authored with Cass Sunstein and hitting bookshelves on August 3rd, 2021. We were joined by a virtual audience of the inaugural cohort of BFI's Expanding Diversity and Economics Summer Institute, or EDE. EDE aims to identify and support early college students with a broad range of backgrounds interested in the field of economics. As I mentioned, Richard Thaler is a Nobel laureate. He received the 2017 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences for his contributions to behavioral economics. But a decade before that, he and Cass published the first edition of Nudge. And since then, it's been used by business and governments around the world to design rules and regulations and influence people's behavior and decision-making. Richard also published Misbehaving, The Making of Behavioral Economics, and he's authored or edited four other books beyond that, along with all manner of other honorifics. Here's my conversation with Professor Thaler, who joined us from his home in Chicago. Here we go. It is my absolute pleasure to share the screen tonight with Richard Thaler. Really good to see you, Dick. Good, good to see you too. I, I don't think I've ever seen you. I know, right? We, 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 you know, we, do, we do radio, so right, it's, right. it's nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. Um, so let's start this discussion about Nudge with um, something personal, if you would. I wonder if you could give us an example of uh, a recent time when you either participated in or maybe initiated a nudge and in the process kind of find it for us. Oh, hmm. Well, I, I can tell you something that I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, so it's not so much a personal story, uh, but uh, a, a piece of, I'm in the process of writing for the New York Times, which is how we should go about nudging people to get vaccinated. Mm. And I, I think it's, uh, it's an interesting, exa interesting example of nudging because what, if you ask scientists, they would say it's a no-brainer to get vaccinated. If you look at the data, virtually everyone that is getting sick is unvaccinated. So if we take a standard economic approach to this, we would say no need to nudge or anything else. As soon as you announce this magic elixir, 
there's going to be a big line to go get it. And of course, that was true for the first months that the vaccines were available. Uh, but we're now working our way through the population and uh, getting to the people who are resistant. And what should we do about that? Well, one possible policy would be to say, everybody has to be vaccinated. And it turns out almost no governments around the world are doing that. Now, private institutions, including the University of Chicago, are planning to do that for the fall, uh, but no governments are. So if, if a government isn't going to require it, what can they do? They can nudge. And uh, so what are the various ways we could get people to do it? I'll give you one example. Some of you are probably uh, NFL football fans. Um, what the NFL is doing is they're, they're creating two kinds of incentives. One is at the team level. If 85% of the players get vaccinated, the team gets more lenient rules. And at the player level, if you're not vaccinated, you have to get tested every day. You're not allowed to fly with the other players for away games. And while you're on the road, you stay in your room until kickoff. So um, some of these are more or less um, harsh than others, but they're all in the realm of nudging. And it really is a good example of this word nudge. And I love the title of the book because there's like this implied little in front of it, right? A little nudge. Um, and that's really the basis of everything in the book, uh, that it's the, the little stuff, the seemingly insignificant stuff that has surprisingly large effects on behavior. And you just have a ton of examples of this. You have um, the men's toilets at the airport in Amsterdam where they put uh, images of uh, flies on urinals to see if men would aim at them and maybe make less of a mess, and it worked. Um, or say you put healthy food at eye level in a cafeteria, people are more apt to then grab that instead of a treat. Um, even something as seemingly small as, and, and I remember talking about this years ago on, on my finance program, uh, making the default in a retirement plan an opt-in. So people actively have to opt out instead. So these are very seemingly small changes. Um, and I wonder if you could kind of talk us through why it's so much easier for us to follow a little nudge rather than say some grand gesture, like a, a, a tax or making something mandatory like a vaccine. What is it about our brains and the process of decision-making that makes a nudge work? Well, you know, I, I wouldn't say that nudges work better than rules. Uh, they, they might on some people, I'm not a particularly good rule follower. I, I did, <laughs> as you mentioned, I wrote a book called misbehaving. But um, what's true is uh, nudges are things that economists would say wouldn't matter at all. So it, it's not that they work better than a mandate. Uh, most of us follow the law most of the time. It's that they work at all. 
And the fact that in some cases they work amazingly well, as when if you default people into the retirement plan and 90% of the people join, uh, th that's a pretty shocking result. And when we first get started getting findings like that, a, a lot of economists sort of said, hmm, okay, maybe there's more to this than we had been willing to acknowledge up to that point. You know, in, in misbehaving, I, I coined this term supposedly irrelevant factors. And it, normally, and you guys are going to be studying economics over the next, what is it, month? Um, you'll see a lot of predictions from economists that are kind of vague in the sense that if you raise the price, people will buy less. They don't say how much less. The theory just says you raise the price, people buy less. By how much? Mm, well, that's an empirical question. What precise predictions are economists willing to make? They're willing to say that some things matter precisely not at all. And those are nudges. So if they matter at all, then that's um, a stick in the nose. <laughs> There's an image. Um, so Nudge brought uh, a new phrase into the philosophical and political lexicon, I remember back in 2008, and, and you call it libertarian paternalism. Um, so I guess, I don't know, a mashup of what, Rand Paul and Ward Cleaver, something like that. And nobody in this audience is going to get that reference. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, as you note, on, uh, on their face, these seem to be uh, really complete philosophical opposites. Uh, libertarianism, basically live and let live. Government, every, government, everybody else, stay out of my life. Paternalism is basically government, everybody else, babysit me and tell me what to do so I get it right. So how do you square that circle? with the concept of nudge? So let, let me tell you a very University of Chicago story that happens to be the origin story for this phrase. So I was giving a talk at the University of Chicago at a conference that was organized in honor of my thesis advisor, Sherwin Rosen, who had passed away at a young age. And I was presenting a paper uh, on Save More Tomorrow, uh, a concept you're familiar with, which is when we offer people the opportunity to sign up now to save more later. And it's because we all have more self-control in the future. We're gonna exercise next week. So uh, my discussant, and if you're not familiar with this term discussant, at academic conferences, the way it's often organized is the speaker gives a talk and then there's a designated person to dump on it. At least that's the way it was done at this conference. And my discussant was Professor Casey Mulligan, um, who is probably 
um, one of the people who likes behavioral economics least. So uh, he's discussing this paper and he says, well, yeah, it does seem to work. The when we offered the people this program, saving rates more than tripled. So uh, Casey's saying, you know, yeah, I have to admit that kind of works, but you know what? This, this feels like paternalism. Now, at the University of Chicago, if you call somebody a paternalist, you know, it's, it's about as bad as it gets. You know, maybe Packer fan would be, uh, would be up there, um, communist, paternalist, they're, they're all in the, in the same category. So I was a little surprised by that because this was completely voluntary, right? We, here's an option. It's like giving people an alarm clock. Is that paternalism? It's up to you if you, when, what time you said it and uh, whether you said it. So, uh, so I said, gee, Casey, I, I don't know. Normally we think of paternalism kind of the way Tess described it as the government telling you what to do. So I said, you know, normally we think of paternalism as coercion, uh, like prohibition, uh, where we made alcohol illegal. So I said, Gee, if this is paternalism, it, it maybe it's some different kind of paternalism. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we could call it libertarian paternalism. Now, I knew this was not going to go over that well. <laughs> uh, the next day, I was having lunch with my buddy, Cass Sunstein, who was at that time a professor at the law school here. And I said, uh, Cass, uh, I came up with an interesting phrase yesterday, libertarian paternalism. And I think people are going to hate this idea. Maybe we should write a book about it. <laughs> and the rest is history. So to answer your real question, we actually, we wrote a paper called Libertarian Paternalism is Not an Oxymoron. And um, the reason why it isn't is we use libertarian as an adjective. So by paternalism, we just mean trying to help you. So a GPS device is paternalistic. It gives you directions. If I'm trying to get from Hyde Park to Lincoln Park, where I live on the north side of town, my GPS device will tell me the best route, but it's up to me whether I want to take it. So um, that GPS is kind of, our ideal nudge. And we would like there to be the GPS option for everything in life. I could use that in many aspects of my life. Yeah, so. <laughs> and if you're, if you're as uh, navigationally challenged as I am, <laughs> uh, GPS has saved me uh, many times. Cass was even worse. 
if he left Hyde Park, he got lost. So uh, the only places he went that were out of Hyde Park were the airport. So. Um. I, I got a laugh uh, in in this new edition where y- you talked about some of the outdated references that you and Cass needed to, to fix from 2008 to 2021, um, like the iPod. I'm not sure anyone here except maybe you and I remember that one. Um, but there were some bigger changes that you felt the need to address kind of as history had, had marched on. So I want to talk about a couple of those. And I'll start with smart disclosure. Now, back in 2008, you could certainly say that most of us had access to a a, a faucet of information to help us make choices, right? But man, now it is a fire hose. Um, And so often, there is so much information that it's almost impossible to access. You know, how many of us actually read our contracts with the cell phone company before we hit the agree button? Uh, Not me. Um, So can you tell us about the idea that you have in this book to create online decision-making tools called choice engines and why that came to be in this edition versus the first one? So, you know, the the kernel of the idea of smart disclosure was in the first edition, but we gave it a lousy name and it didn't really take off. And, um, and the time has really come. So if you think about, there are all kinds of disclosure rules in markets that the government sets. So if you want to have an IPO, um, you have to disclose lots of things about the government. If you uh, issue a, mor- a mortgage, you have to list all kinds of features of the mortgage contract. And if you uh, uh, log on to Facebook or Twitter, there will be terms and um, apparently the Facebook terms are 246 pages. Now, it's my belief that there is not a single person on earth including all the lawyers at Facebook, who has actually read those terms, all of them, right? It must have been an army of lawyers that each had bits to write. So it's safe to say no one is going to read those. So it's just strange that we're living in the 21st century and the technology we use to disclose things is first century technology, right? It's nothing different than writing something down with a scroll on, uh, you know, and... Uh, right, you, you mentioned like the, the ingredient list and, and nutrition information on a... Yeah, on yeah a exactly. So we, you know, we have computers now. So we, we could... Um, So you mentioned the ingredient list. That's a good example. Um, There are rules that if you sell packaged food in the United States, you have to list the ingredients on the side of the box. 
in usually in pretty small print and in lot using long words that people don't really know what they are. And it's not really very helpful. So suppose that instead, all of that stuff was available online. And in addition, suppose that, suppose you go to some supermarket as your regular supermarket, Safeway or whatever. And uh, you belong to one of these shoppers clubs that all big supermarket chains have. Well, if you're in a shoppers club, that means they know everything you've ever purchased. So one of our principles is that you should own your own data. So if they know it, you should know it. Now, let's suppose that that was the case. And suppose you had a kid with a peanut allergy. So I have a granddaughter who has a peanut allergy. It's a nuisance for her mom to constantly be checking, you know, let's see, does this cracker have peanuts and was it made in a factory that has peanuts? Suppose instead she could go to her shopper's club and upload all the things she's bought in the last six months with one click to nopeanuts.com, which is what we'll call a choice engine. Nopeanuts.com does not exist. I'm making that up. <laughs> uh, it would exist in the world we're trying to create. Uh, and nopeanuts.com would, would uh, tell my daughter-in-law, okay, here are the 30 things that you're buying now that are potentially dangerous for Julia. And uh, you should stop buying those. And here are 30 good substitutes that you might buy instead. Okay, that would make, you know, it used to be uh, the, the kids attending this, some of them uh, claim to have heard of iPods. Um, I bet none of them have ever been to a travel agent. <laughs> now, a travel agent is a now nearly obsolete occupation because anybody can go online. So a lot, uh, lots of you traveled to Chicago to get here, and I'm betting you didn't call a travel agent, you went online and you found the cheapest flight or the most convenient time from wherever you were to Chicago, to O'Hare Midway. And now anybody can be a travel agent. Why is that the case? It's because the airlines are required to upload all of their schedules and prices to a common place so that means Expedia and Travelocity and uh, all those thin kayak can all exist because of smart disclosure. So we wanna make everything as easy to shop for as a plane ticket from your hometown to Chicago and back. I would imagine that these students would say that FAFSA 
the student loan application is a perfect example of terrible, terrible, not smart. Exactly. <laughs> well, FAFSA, so we've tried, Cass and I have actually tried hard to do something about that. Yeah. So, uh, which is to pre-populate the FAFSA forms. Now, most of the data that is required is tax data that guess who owns that? The government. So why it's, you know, it's the government is asking you to provide the information that they already have. I'll give you a, 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 an example that applies to everybody, which is tax returns. Mm -hmm. The government already has the data to do a your complete tax return for 90% of the tax paying public. And that's because 90% take what's called the standard deduction. And so their tax return is very simple and um, they've got the data. In Sweden, you know how you file a tax return? You get a text message from the government we think we owe you 2,000 kroners. If you agree, press one and we'll uh, send you the money and it appears in your bank account the next day. That's it. That's it. And e people, even with simple tax returns, spend hours filling it out or they go pay somebody to do it and in Austin Goolsby, uh, one of my colleagues here at University of Chicago, who undoubtedly, uh, Tess, you have talked to on the radio many on many occasions, he had the idea back around 2008, why don't we send everybody a pre-populated tax return? What did Congress do? They passed a law forbidding the IRS from doing that. Now, take a wild guess <laughs> what industry might have lobbied for that version of that law. And if you guess tax preparation H &R terms, you get an A. <laughs> everybody's got A's. Um, and uh, by the way, um, yeah, everybody knows an iPod, so I was wrong there, but uh, you, you got them with the travel agent. Yeah. No idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't even know what that is. Right. They, secret agent. They know that. Right. You know. right. Um, so I am running out of time and I have all these questions um, about snudge and sludge, uh, but we'll go ahead and let folks uh, keep reading the book for that. Um, because I wanted to ask you, you know, another element of the world that has changed drastically since the first edition of the book is, is the political and social divide in this country including the debate over facts themselves. And I wonder what you think about how nudges play out at this point in time, depending on say political beliefs and whether it's really that different now from, from a decade ago, you know, as you were writing this edition during the pandemic, when, you know, nudges about masks and vaccinations were interpreted yeah. wildly differently. Were you surprised at all by, by that kind of societal change and what it meant to your own theories? Well, um, yes, I think, 
I think we're all surprised at how polarized the country has become. And, you know, let's, we'll wrap up our duet here on, on a place where we started, which is uh, vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. Um, the most su- surprising fact about vaccine is the proportion of a state that is vaccinated is directly proportional to the number of Trump voters. Now, it didn't used to be that the decision of whether to get vaccinated or not had anything to do with who you voted for, for president. Right. And uh, I, it's hard to imagine how that's exactly happened, but it certainly makes things worse. And um, the, we, we need more news forums like Marketplace and NPR and uh, less that are uh, ideological uh, funnels. Okay, I do have one more question that I want to ask you um, because it's for specifically for the students. And I wonder uh, if you could design a singular nudge for our students today, uh, either as a professor, as a dad, uh, or just a fellow member of the human race. What might that be? Well, I don't know whether, uh, I, I don't know whether this strictly qualifies as a nudge, but it, it's a bit of advice. So uh, maybe it'll serve the purpose. Um, so as young people are trying to think of what they want to do with their lives, and apparently you and my wife both went through uh a decision of changing uh, what you're going to do uh, in midstream, and you yep. both decided to become photographers. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, my wife used to be a marketing professor. Um, here's my advice about thinking about what you want to do. And I think a very common mistake people make is to say, the thing I like studying the most is the highly correlated with the job I want to take. So if I really like studying economics, then I should do something that makes use of that. And now there's obviously a certain sense to that. I mean, if, if you want to be a scientist, you better like studying science. Um, but the, the part that I think is easy to get wrong is you, people don't think enough about what the job actually is. And so the, the advice I would give people is uh, before you decide you want to become a doctor, go talk to a doctor 
your family doctor or some relative as a doctor or anybody about what their day is like. And whether you can imagine spending 40 years doing that. And, you know, even kids have a very limited range of jobs they've actually gotten to see firsthand. So maybe the jobs their parents do and some other family members, and then others, everybody knows what a teacher does. So lots of kids want to be teachers, firemen, you know, when you're a kid, everybody, every kid goes through a stage where they want to be a first responder or something. But, you know, uh, not very many people think about becoming an architect. You don't even know what that is when you're in high school, most kids. So, um, you know, if you think about being a professor, most people's idea of what a professor is, is standing up and teaching all day. That's a good description of what a high school teacher does. Most of the job of a professor at a research university like the University of Chicago (coughs) is sitting in a room alone, thinking, writing, writing code, reading papers, writing referee reports, it's solitary. And lots of people get through all the the classwork and then find out that they don't like doing the research. Well, a good thing that's happened in our business is that there's a whole new thing that didn't exist when I went to school or even 20 years ago, which is pre-docs. So, uh, and we're big on that at the University of Chicago. Lots of students when they graduate who are thinking about going to graduate school can get a job for a year or two working as a pre-doctoral research assistant. That gives you a great idea of what the grunt work part of being a researcher is all about. And guess what? That's what a graduate student does. And that's what an assistant professor does. And so to the extent that you can experience what it's really like to be X, that's much better than reading about it in a book. Love that. So folks, that is a personal nudge from Dick Thaler. Love it. Dick, such a pleasure. And all of you students, thank you so much. I hope this was helpful for you. Um, Lots of great stories, lots of great information. So thank you all. And bye everybody. Uh, Have a great time in this program and go do great things. Thank you for joining us for today's extra slice of the pie. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. We'll see you next time.